On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the stories of parents learning how to raise a child with a rare disease. Our co-hosts, Sanath Kumar Ramesh and Brittany Ratke, parents of rare disease kiddos who have very different situations. Sanath's son Raghav has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian-type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Brittany's daughter Everly has been diagnosed with SET-D5, a mutation that carries with it the potential for a range of complications and even other diagnoses. My name is Kevin Fryert. After 30 years doing research and development at Pfizer, I started Salem Oaks to help patients and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D. Our goal on Raising Rare is to help and lift up our listeners by sharing the unfolding stories of these two families. We also feature the stories of other rare disease families, clinicians, researchers, and industry leaders in the rare disease community. If you'd like to follow these parent stories, please subscribe to Raising Rare on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Raising Rare. We are delighted to touch base with a guest from our first season, Terry Pirovalakis. Terry's son, Michael, has a mutation or a disorder known as spastic paraplegia 50. At that time, three years ago, Terry was just getting started in finding a treatment and raising the necessary funds. Unfortunately, Sanath cannot be with us today. Raga's had some health problems. So, Michael, I'd like to introduce you to Brittany Ratke, who joined our Raising Rare team just last year. Hi, Terry. It's such an absolute pleasure to meet you and have you on the show today. I think we should just dive in. Can you tell us more about Michael and his story? Yeah, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show again. Um, yeah, Michael Michael was diagnosed on April 2nd of 2019 when our journey started. Um, when that happened, basically me and my wife um, you know, had a complete breakdown for like two or three days, like a fog, I call it. And uh, after that fog, we just started doing a ton of research and realizing that um, a gene therapy uh, or an ASO or a drug could be created. And thankfully, a family in Boston that had a similar disease, um, you know, told us about all these things that were possible. They, they took us under their wing um, for a couple of weeks. They took care of us and made sure that we understood what was going on. Um, and then we kind of went on our own. And I was fortunate enough to meet a whole bunch of people along the journey um, and one of them mentioned the ASGCT conference. So I, he told me, you know, pull up a sign that basically says wanted a cure for Michael and like a Wild West kind of one. And maybe I'll, I'll send it to you so you can put it on the, on the blog. And, um, and, and basically went to the conference. I put, put up the posters and I met six of the seven world experts in gene therapy. I met with the FDA, the NIH and a bunch of companies. And I asked them all the same thing. I said, what would you do? What would, if this was your child? And 90% of them basically said gene therapy. So I met the sixth to seventh world experts. I flew to uh, Sheffield and I met the seventh world expert in gene therapy at the time. And then about a month later, we hired Dr. Stephen Gray at UTSW and Dr. Xin Chen to make us a gene therapy, do a proof of concept, engineer mice, uh, all the crazy stuff that, you know, you start down this journey doing. And uh, fast forward about, you know, a year into that journey, 
COVID happened and the world shut down and we were thinking, oh my God, how are we going to raise this monumental amount of money? At that point in time, we raised about a million and a half dollars towards our journey, which was pretty good. But we still had to raise about three and a half million. And um, all of our gene therapy programs were pretty much done. They stopped, but the mice continued because the team continued going in. Um, but some of the other studies, like the fire blast test, didn't continue. Then, you know, the controls started opening up during COVID. And the team at the NIH went in and proved that um, using the gene therapy, that we were able to recover Michael's cells um, in fire blast. And basically that... That one test, that's one example of curing those fire blasts, led us to start doing the, the safety testing in, in non-human primates, in mice, sorry, in rats, and basically manufacturing the drug at the same time. So instead of doing everything in series, we took a $4 million gamble and we did everything in parallel um, based on that one fire blast test. No mice data yet, just the fire blast test. Thankfully, about six months later, we showed that in mice that we were able to recover Heinlich clasping, which was an efficacy endpoint that we could move forward with. Uh, we filed a pre-IND. That's when they told us we had to do RAD and, and non-human primate tests. And before the non-human primate tests were even finished, we had a clinical grade product available. So if we end up having a problem that showed it wasn't safe, this would have all been thrown into the garbage. Luckily, we showed safety. We moved forward and uh, we applied to Health Canada on December 30th. Um, we got approval. Sorry, we applied December 1st, December 30th. We received approval. And then March 24th, Michael was dosed with the gene therapy um, that we worked so hard to do. On top of that, we didn't want to let anybody know that Michael got treated because we felt that imagine now you're a, you're a family and you're hoping to get treated and you hear this end of one and you're like, oh, my God, is this ever going to happen for us? So we continued down the path and we filed um, an FDA pre-IND or an IND in July. We received approval August and uh, the first patient got dosed in February, part of that um, phase one, two clinical trial. And the next patient will be dosed next month. So we have three children that will be dosed by the, by the end of this, by the time this recording comes out. And um, and we're doing a whole bunch more, which we'll we can continue on right after. Wow. Right after so you... <laughs> you took the $4 million bet. You spent all that time raising that money. And you said, we're going to do kind of what they did with the COVID vaccines, which is we're going to produce clinical grade material before we know it's the thing we need. Are you like a gambling type guy or is that just what drove that? I buy every insurance that there is usually. I'm not a gambling person. But the reality is that if you took um, making plasmid, which takes five months, and then making the drug five months, and you took that after your toxicology studies, you would lose basically almost two years, right? But you go to the IRB, you know, at the hospital. So we decided that we couldn't lose that amount of time. And we just said, let's just do it. And, and luckily, it paid off for us. I love that too. And I always love a good insurance plug because that's what I do <laughs> full time. But I wanted to just kind of back up a little bit too and, and think about, okay, so you're in this fog, right? At the initial diagnosis, then all of a sudden you're working with some of the seven largest researchers. Now you've gone this far. What has that road been like emotionally for you to go from the fog to just this tremendous therapy work that you you guys have 
done and continue to do, what is that like emotionally? And, and does that help with some of the process you've gone through in grieving and change? And how does that look for you? Yeah, I mean, once we decided that we were going to move forward, I mean, we didn't we didn't look back. Um, it was a very hard journey, to be honest with you. I mean, there was bumps in the road. Nothing ever goes the way you plan. Everything takes way longer. Like, we thought we'd have our mice in six months. It took them 13 months to get our mice. We um, we were shipping plasmid uh, from, sorry, we were shipping pro- some products from Spain to Quebec, and it went through Texas during the snowstorm, and it got destroyed, right? Um these are kind of setbacks that you have along the journey. And what you have to do is accept them as something that happens. And you can't get upset at people because everybody's working. Like, you know, you're paying, yes, you're paying groups and you're paying people. But what is happening in the background is that money covers a very small amount of actual work. And a lot of people are working overtime and after hours and, and a whole bunch of other things just to try to make your journey successful. And one thing that I learned along the way is you cannot get mad at people. You just have to accept what happens and kind of move forward. It's that's all you can do, because a lot again, all these people are doing way more and above and beyond than what you think they're doing. I just you. listened to our earlier conversation, and I remember telling you, you got to tap into the motivation of people. You'll get so much more done than your dollars will take you, and you saw that now. I mean, when someone steps up and says you're going to take the chance, you did. That really does motivate those people to say, wow, this guy's willing to do that. I'll put in a couple extra hours. Um, well, on top of that, I was I was on every single phone call, right? I mean, we're talking like, you know, it's not ordinary for the parent to be on a toxicology call, right? A summary call of the toxicology or an update. And I was on every single call throughout this journey pretty much, right? So I think people saw that. They saw that I was vested, that you know, that, you know, I was committed to seeing this through and, and, and people really stepped up and supported us. I mean, how else would you get 10,000 donations and, you know, people posting galas and barbecues and garage sales and, you know, you name it, we did it. And most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, we didn't organize anything. We just showed up and people just said, we want to help you. We, we, you know, we ran this event for your child and, and here's the money that we raised and, you know, God be with you, try to help your child, right? And we took that and we decided that we were going to try to help as many kids as we humanly could. And I think on top of, you know, gaining this tremendous gene therapy, now you have that community of support with you all the time. And sometimes that's that's what we need to get by, right? We need that support and community. And I'm so impressed with all the work that you've been doing. I I do want to know, how is Michael doing today? You know, he's doing okay. Um, one thing that he did have, so what happened was he got he had the therapy, then he went through um, nine weeks or eight weeks of intense physiotherapy at a school. Um, and then he got sick and we went to the hospital and he contracted um, C. difficile, um, <clears throat> which is a terrible bacterial infection. So for six months, he couldn't go to school. He couldn't do therapy and he became very weak. And not just now is he getting back to that. And that was because we had to immunocompromise him um, in order for the gene therapy to not harm him. And um, and to this day, he's still fairly compromised. So it was just something that we had to deal with, unfortunately. But um, he is. we are seeing improvements. He is doing better. It's just we lost, you know, six months, eight months while he recovered from this terrible illness that he had. Oh, 
I sympathize with you because early on at about three months, Everly also contracted C. diff and it felt like it never went away. It was, yeah, isn't it terrible? It's it's terrible. Yeah. We ended up, I'm not sure if you guys had to do the same thing. I think we took vangomycin, I believe it was called and many, many doses of that, um, which was not great on their systems either. So, and not to mention the precious time too, that you guys, like you mentioned the six to eight months of, of time lost, you know, to potential there. Yeah, like we spent like $10,000 on medicine. We went through vancomycin. It didn't do anything. Um, we went through three different antibiotics. Um, sorry, we went through six different rounds and three different antibiotics. And uh, the last resort was fecal matter transplant. And they didn't offer it in Canada. We were going to go to Boston. Um, it was just it was just a terrible experience overall. But, I mean, we're hopefully past it. And, and now just, you know, moving on to making him stronger. The problem is that his core is weak, so we're trying to – get his core stronger, but how do you tell a kid, hey, you got to do sit-ups when he has the mentality of a one-year-old, right? It's not going to happen. I don't even want to do sit-ups, let alone he does. Um, and uh, so it's it's a, it's 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 been challenging, but we are moving forward. Um, some other things we are doing, though, and we were very fortunate, is we had a really amazing partner called Virogen and Columbus Children's Foundation. And um, the CEO, Javier uh, Garcia, went up to him and I said, hey, if we you know, there's, there's three more children in Spain. Um, if I end up bringing the, doing the work and applying to the government, would you make us another batch of drug to treat the children that are in Spain? Because every kid deserves to be treated, regardless if we think they're going to be helped or not. And he said, absolutely. Kind of blown away. So I flew to Spain. Um, they started manufacturing the drug. We went to a, a hospital in Pamplona, just outside of San Sebastian. And the hospital agreed to dose the kids as well. So now what we're doing is, by the fall, we're hopefully going to be dosing four to six European children that are excluded from the North American trial. Um, so what's going to happen is we're going to take um, two kids from Spain, two kids from Italy, two kids from Belgium, let's call it, bring them to Spain, get them treated, and then send them back home. Um, and the goal is to give them a better life as well. So we're working on that. And then um, we've also decided that we're going to run a pivotal study on the kids so hopefully by the fall we're going to start an eight patient clinical trial across the u.s um and the goal is that to get that approved because the reality is if we just dosed michael and these two other kids that would be the end of it you know no one else is going to raise seven million dollars to manufacture drug and you know and four fifty thousand dollars per patient to get treated that's 1.2 million dollars per patient right and the only people that are going to be able to do that are the rich or someone that can raise a lot of money, but leaves the rest of them out of it. So the only way to get the drug, in my perspective, to the kids is to get the drug approved. So that insurance companies and governments will pay for the drug and, and we can move forward. So our goal is if we dose eight kids, which is basically 100% of the U.S. population and four or five kids from Europe, that the FDA will see the endpoint efficacy that we have, see the small population, understand the need, this severely unmet need, and then we can get the drug out there, hopefully find a commercial ethical partner and get the drug to the rest of the kids. So it's kind of what we're working on right now as well. So it's kind of, um, it's been a, been a journey, but we have really good partners along the way. 
I love hearing this. You're kind of breaking the mold of of what drug development really has been for decades, and you're finding a new way to do it, and you're doing it with a different different lens. You're looking at the problem differently and saying, well, wait, there's two more kids. There's two more kids. And that's a lot, right? It's, it's, not, it's not just two kids. It's two more. Well, it's like, it's like basically saying, you know, let's forget about the two generation of children that can be treated today and we'll worry about the next generation. Why? Why should we do that? Like why um, when we can? And the only barrier to that is basically saying, we don't need to do a phase one, two. We don't need to do a phase three. We don't need to do a phase four. There's not enough children in the world to do, like we're going to dose every kid in the trial. The only way to do that is to raise enough money through partnerships and collaborations um, and to treat these kids, show enough efficacy in the cohorts, which is eight or 10 should be enough. And then, and then hopefully the FDA will, will give us, a, you know, see that, that it's an ultra rare condition and, and offer a bit of leniency. And what does that look like for someone that maybe doesn't have, you know, an active role in, in submitting things to the FDA and how that looks? What's that process like once you get to that point? Yeah, I mean, it's so phase one, two is, is actually not that difficult, to be honest with you. There's steps you have to take and there's a lot of hope and prayers along the way because you can't control a, um, the drug being toxic in a rat, right? If it's toxic in a rat, your program is done or in a non-human primate, right? Or you have to go back to the drawing board. But if your drug has been safety tested, it's shown to be safe, it's been done before, um, then your likelihood of getting it through safety testing and into a clinical trial is pretty good. So basically what you do is you do a proof of concept. You show that there's efficacy in an animal or a cell. Once you do that, you apply to the FDA through a pre-IND meeting, and you basically say, here's the course of the disease. This is what the disease looks like. This is what happens to the children. And then you have a natural history study that says, here is 30 kids. And on average, a child is paralyzed by the age of five. By the age of 10, they're this. By the age of 20, they're that, as an example. You then say, okay, we're planning to do these safety tests to show that it's safe. And are you okay with all these things that we're doing? So how are we plan to dose the kids? what immunosuppressant you're going to use, all these, all the information you plan to use. You submit the pre-IND, they come back and say, we notionally agree to your idea, move forward. You go and you do this manufacturing for the toxicology, you do the safety tests, you write something called an IND document, which is a, a bunch of documents together, most important, which is called the protocol and the 2.4, and uh, the pharmacy manual and the informed consent and investigator's brochure, those five documents. You draft those documents up, you submit to the FDA through an IND, and they say, based on the risk-reward ratio of the disease, based on the safety of the disease of your drug so far, yes, you can proceed to move forward and dose a child. You then apply to the university or the hospital, and they have something called an IRB board. You apply to the IRB board, it takes about three to four months. They train the team, they do the quality assessments, they do all this training to the staff in the, in the hospital, and then you dose the patient, and that's how it usually happens. That process, on average, if you were to do everything in parallel, would take five to seven years. If you did everything in series, could be done in 18 months, just to put things in perspective. 
Um, you need to have a really good FDA consultant. You need to have a good CMC consultant, manufacturing consultant, um, a really good neurologist. A really, you need to have a really good team, basically, because when you file your IND, you only have 48 hours to respond back with qu the questions they give you. So you have to be prepared. You have to you know, understand what you're doing. So that's why if you build a solid team around you, you're able to move forward. If you have a team that's never done this before, it's going to be a hurdle. To bring that team together from where you started is just amazing because you don't know whether they've done this before. You don't know who all those people are. How do you pull them together and then get them to work as a unit? Um, it's a, it's commendable that you've been able to do that. And I think part of it is what you said before. You were engaged with them. You were on every phone call. They didn't have anywhere to go. They had to work with you. Well, we're lucky because we 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 um, we found amazing people, and we were told about amazing people, right? Like uh, Dr. Gray, who's done this quite a few times so far. He was an expert at this, right? He knew exactly what to do. You know, he said, "Hey, I've worked with this person. I've worked with that person. We got them on board, um, and, and we just had an amazing team, and that's what got us got us there." It was a lot of work, though. It was a significant amount of work. Um, and so now I teach a gene therapy one-on-one course every uh, couple of months. And I go from proof of concept all the way to manufacturing. And I kind of stop there because <laughs> the rest of it is kind of a big piece as well. Um, but it's, it's, it's meant to try to help people at the very beginning, the middle, and near the end. And then you listen to it again and you learn things that you would have missed before if you were along this journey. So the day that you dose Michael, you've done all this work to get there. And is it, was it a single dose or did he have to have multiple doses, multiple injections? What, yeah. Yeah. So the way, the way it works is, um, they, they get, um, rap immune through an immunosuppressant, uh, the week before they then go in the, uh, the, that day they get, um, IV hooked up to them. They get fluids, they get put to sleep. They get uh, they then put into the to the room where the gene therapy happens. They inject the intrathecal needle through a continuous X-ray machine, and then they angle the patient on a 15 degree or sorry 12 degree angle, Trent Tellenberg position. They start the infusion. It's one mil per minute for 10 minutes, and then once it's done, they take the needle out and they rotate for the next hour and a half, left to right, right to left, head down. So they get the brain fluid around right mix it up and you know six hours later three hours an hour or two or later they're awake and now you're just monitoring making sure nothing affects them and 12 hours later you're home it's pretty crazy i mean it's uh it's surreal because you think this is going to be this major thing and it's not you're just waiting there two hours later um but it is the scariest thing i've ever done because you're like you know nothing is ever safe right g therapy is has its problems and you're thinking, did I do the right thing? Am I going to harm my child? You know? Um, so it was amazing and scary at the same time. Yeah, just the, what you explained there, that they're like shaking the stuff around in his skull. That sounds kind of scary. Um, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, moving it around. I mean, it, um, but the, um, so, so as the days passed, Everything was good. Did he have any reaction, acute reaction? And have you seen any progress yet? 
Well, I mean, the, the thing is that uh, because they're on steroids, they're they're more hyper for the first couple of weeks. Um, and then after that, what happens is then and the first week was the worst week of our lives. And the reason for that is um, prednisone has a very bitter taste. And uh, every time he would chew on it back, he would projectile vomit. So he came, he, every time you would give it to him, he would throw up. And now you're like, okay, this drug needs to be put in him so he can be safe and not die from the gene therapy. And now you're freaking out about how you're going to give him another two drugs as well. So you're giving him like three or four drugs, morning, noon, and night. And they're throwing it up and, you know, he doesn't want it anymore. You're forcing it down his throat with a syringe. It was extremely stressful. It was the most stressful thing I've ever gone through. Um, but then you get over it and then they start gaining weight from the prednisone and having mood swings. And so there's all these things that you go through along this journey, but then, you know, you hope that everything works out in the end. So how long ago was it that, that Michael got treated? So that had to be a happy birthday in there when he, um, when you got past it. Um, and have, have you seen any, any progress yet? Has there been any change in, in Michael? We are seeing changes. I mean, the one thing that we do, we are going through is that because we live in Canada, because there's a lot, it was a bad flu season, he's been sick on and off. So he hasn't been going to school and stuff like that. But we are seeing some changes. Like I, you know, I don't want to say too much because I'm, I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> For some reason, every time we say something, it's like we go backwards instead of forwards. Um, but we are seeing changes. Um, just time will tell if it's, working the way we want it to work. It's, I think the reality is that um, when we built the gene therapy, it was meant to stop the disease. That's our goal, right? And um, I think if we could, if we would have got into him sooner, um, or even I think if we would have got to him before six months or a year, it would have been a cure, right? And unfortunately, because we got it to him at four years of age, um, it's going to be less of a cure and more of a treatment, right? That's the reality of it. Um, I, I hope to God it's a cure, but... I, I'm being a realist and that's kind of what we're looking at. If you have families that are maybe early on in this process and might still be stuck kind of in the fog of things, what is your best advice in moving forward? And maybe it's not starting gene therapy. Maybe it's making a difference somehow. What would be your best advice? I would say just don't give up. Just try your best, do what you can. Right. I mean, it's, um, if you, and, and commit to whatever you're going to do, right? Because if you don't commit to something, you're not going to see it through. So if it's like, you know, if it's setting up a charity and raising funds for wheelchairs or access because your child is further along, that's perfectly fine. If it's, uh, you know, you're committed to do an ASO or a gene therapy, you have to commit and fully invest your time and effort. You have to be to the point where we, we were willing to give up everything. Like, when we were in the room that day, when when we're you know for the gene, for when they told us about Michael's disease, we we're like, okay, well, let's let's get going. Like, what do you need to take out of our bodies? Do you need a liver, a kidney, a heart? Like, let's take it out. Um, you know, I was willing to sacrifice our lives for our child. And then when we realized that we had to spend and raise all this money, we took out our life savings and we we um, liquidated our home. We had a HELOC in our house that we were planning to, you know, take all the money out and then eventually sell our home if we had to. That's the kind of commitment you have to be willing to do. Give up everything, go anywhere, do anything. And if you're willing to do that, then you will succeed. If you're not, then you know, then you should really have to think about what you're doing. And I tell people the same thing, and it's 
it's pretty, it's pretty crazy because a lot of people will call in, call us, and we'll talk to them. I've spoken to thousands of people, and um, a lot of people don't call back, right? When you tell them you have to, you know, give up this and you're willing to do that, and but some people are committed and they do it and just don't give up. But if, but you're right, you have to commit and willing to give up everything. Thank you. That actually gives me so much hope, and I know that. Sometimes at the beginning, we're just hanging on by a thread and it might not be like a huge impactful thing, but whatever it is, you have to commit to it, like you said, because it could have a big impact on on the community that you're in. I do have to ask too, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to share with us? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a story about you know commitment and, and support. So we were at the manufacturing stage and we were about a million dollars short. And I had a mentor of, uh, he was a CEO of a biotech company. And I reached out to him and I said, you know, what do I do? I'm, I'm at this point where we have to spend a million, I, we were short a million. And, um, and I'm like, listen, I have to sell my home <laughs> at this point. We're going to sell my home, um, but we're risking everything because we're doing everything concurrently. What would you do? Should I pause and do everything in parallel or should I continue and do everything in series but risk my home? So it was interesting. He goes, don't worry, Terry, I'll call you back tomorrow. Let me just give me a day. He calls me back the next day and he goes, um, I, I, I talked to my board. They unfortunately won't take it on, but I took out a million dollars of money that I had and I'm, and I'm going to give it to you because I feel that you're, you've done everything that we thought. And, uh, and he donated the million dollars the next day, like crazy. And uh, it allowed us to not have to sell our home and not have to like, you know, figure out what we do with our other kids and, you know, be left in the street, like, you know, but that's the kind of hope and the kind of amazing support that's out there when you really need it. When you are at the darkest of your times and you're thinking there's no way we're ever going to do this and we're going to be late five years, you would be surprised. People will come around and help you. That's mind blowing. Yeah. Or another period of time was we applied to health Canada and, and the FDA and, Health Canada, FDA didn't really need us to do non-human primates, but Health Canada um, was insisting on it. They were basically saying, you know, this is a, the highest dose ever given in a human being. We really want you to do non-human primates. Well, during COVID, you couldn't get a non-human primate. The, you know, it was one, they weren't importing them. And two, COVID had taken up all the non-human primates. They were, you know, they were a huge amount of money. Two hours later, I was on a phone call with Charles River because they were on the call. And uh, within two months, we had started our toxicology study in non-human primates. Like from having a conversation to starting a non-human primate study in two months. You know, so again, when you think you're down, you think your program is over, you know, it, it may not be. And, and you continue on, you move forward. You are, you're going to be a drug hunter now. You, you're, you're, you, you've kind of earned the badge you know, I spent years doing this, and it's those that sort of not willingness to give up, but the willingness to listen to the science and the data that's coming out and making good decisions, but not giving up. Um, it's it's critical to to su successfully finding drugs. Well, it's funny that I mean that's why I was asking about the embargo on the on the call. Um, so as of yesterday, I resigned from my job that I was doing for the last 25 years, which is an IT director for a large bank. And um, we started a biotech company called Alpita Therapeutics. Um, and our first employee started uh, yesterday. 
And um, what we're going to do is we're going to take uh, five programs from proof of concept to the clinic. So what we did was we went out to all our partners, the hospitals, the manufacturers, the plasmid, the toxicology companies, and we said, if we do this crazy idea of taking these five programs to the clinic, would you give us in-kind services, toxicology, hospital stays, all that kind of wonderful stuff. And I was surprised when people started saying, yeah, we'll support you. This is a good cause. And the thought process is we take five programs to the clinic. We get them all approved by the FDA through dosing a number of children, 10 or more. We then get a peer review voucher for each of the programs. Let's say two of the five gets a peer review voucher. We then take the vouchers and we do now 16 programs with that money, right? Because now we have a significant amount of money. So the money never leaves the company. We're running as a nonprofit, but it's really a for-profit company because doing loans and agreements is too difficult as a philanthropic entity. So that's our goal is to say, we're going to get to the clinic. We're going to get it approved. We're going to get the drug to the patient's through a, an ethical corporation that wants to take on these programs, not because they're going to make money, but because of the humanitarian need. We then take the peer review vouchers and we do significantly more programs. And now we're self-sustained. Now we don't need money from other companies. Now we can just spend the money from the PRVs and do toxicology and manufacturing. So we've, uh, we've started with three programs. Um, I can't name them just yet, but they'll be released soon. And then we're going to allow the other two programs to be uh, applicants. They can apply to our company and uh, we'll take them on and run them to the end. So, And what was the name of the company again? Michael's drug, when we made it, was called Malpida. Michael's uh, Alpida. Alpida in Greek means hope. So it was Michael's hope. That's the drug name. We named the company Alpida, which means hope in Greek. So it's Hope Therapeutics. Wow. That is fantastic. I was being a bit facetious there. I knew you were you were up to something, but yes, you're becoming a drug hunter and I love the business model because you're taking those vouchers which come when you get a rare disease drug approved, you get a voucher to get another one through and you those vouchers actually are worth a lot of money that you can use to plow back into more research. Yeah, because the problem is if we just if we just did five programs, again, that would be the end of it. We do those five programs and we would have done something amazing. Would have those 50 kids, we've got them approved, but we need to be able to be self-sustaining, right? And and that's where the PRVs come in to make us self-sustaining and continue us this model. So the goal is that in say a decade from now, we will have a few hundred programs being funded through the PRV programs. Right? That's kind of the idea. Um so that's what we're committed to do, and we're hoping that by this time next year we will have over 30 children dosed, um, and sometime in Q, uh, FY25, we'll have all 50. This, this is just amazing news. So I congratulations on this, and I wish you all the best in, in that endeavor because, as you found out, it's not an easy road, and, and to jump in like this, it's... It, it's very inspirational. Yeah, we're trying. I said we were going to try. So I said our first employee hired last week. Um, and uh, and we just hope that, you know, we can raise enough money. And, uh, you know, because we still have to pay employees. We have to have insurance. 
not everything can be in kind. So we're, we got our first half a million from a seed fund and wow. we need to raise another 3 million. But I'm fairly confident that when, when we come out with the story, come out with the idea that people will see that way, we're not in it to make millions. We're here to see these kids to be treated because, you know, there's very little investment and very little support in ultra rare neurological children diseases. Talk about ALS, you talk about Parkinson's and all that stuff. There's tons of money. But children's diseases, there's almost no funding. Terry, it has been absolutely incredible to hear the updates and the strides that you guys have made in the last three years. I want to note, too, I'd love to see what you can get done in 24 hours because I'm so impressed with, with everything that you've done. But I'm anxious to have you back in a few years and hear the progress that you've made then. Thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And yeah, hopefully, you know, um, with a lot of luck and prayers, this will happen. We'll, we'll see these kids to be treated and and uh, give these kids the lives they deserve, right? So thank you. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4.org on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. The SETD5 community is currently getting organized. We will let you know where you can donate soon. You can continue to follow Raghav and Everly stories next time on Raising Rare.